Hello, and welcome to Inside the Sound of Fear. Sword and Sorcery is a subgenre of pulp fiction that spiked in popularity with the works of Robert E. Howard and Clark Ashton Smith in the magazine Weird Tales in the late 1920s. A young woman pursues a curious resonance that may be a key to her mysterious lineage in this novelette, written in a blistering two and a half weeks. When we petition the gods for help, it behooves us to be specific about what we want. And now, please enjoy Echoes. She had first noticed it on a tranquil summer night. One eerily sustained note, like the skirl from the triple pipes, yet deeper. It woke her from sleep and raised the little hairs on her arms. By fall, Helga had heard it several times and could discern more of the tune, a phrase, a melody, a song. That haunting music could not have been created by any earthly musician. It came adrift on a whispering wind that rushed over the hills and breathed between the houses of her village. Calm, sad, comforting. So different from the muted rhythmic hammering of the blacksmith behind the great hall and the drunken shouts of men feasting within. Yet, in a way, it had brought her here. The Great Hall was Jarl Marabad's home, the only two-story structure in the Harrell village, twice wider and thrice taller than any other. The Harrell people had taken Helga in, accepted her. Her adoptive father, Wolfgar, a warrior, had stood in the spot she was now standing many times. While he lived, Wolfgar had been part of Marabod's herd, his close circle of heroes until his final years, when the wasting disease had taken him. This was her first time here, and Hell, that's what Wolfgar had always called her, was grateful to not be alone. Three other youths had responded to the Jarl's call for heroes and stood with her, They waited on the paved track that rounded the great ash tree, where enemies of the village were executed by hanging, and led to the giant iron-bound double doors of the hall. The tall girl, Valeska, a woman now by the look of her, enjoyed playing at war with the village boys, a fighter at heart, who carried her spear with a fighter's pride. The brutish boy, Thorolf, dressed in thick bearskin armor, who had finally grown into his two large hands and feet this year, and lean, handsome Asher, the goatherd's son, with his short sword and bow, who spent most of his time away from the village, scouting surrounding lands. She wondered if any of them had heard the music like she had. A stone-faced guard, taller and larger than any of them, with a round wooden shield, a tall spear, and a helm of metal, stood between them and the doors. He looked down his nose guard and greeted them with formality. I know you four. 
Your place is not here. Why do you disturb the Jarl with your troubles? Haven't you heard? There's a thing in progress. Hell remembered what her father had taught her about his own first visit to the Jarl's house. She had practiced the words and was preparing to speak when Aesher beat her to it. He said, We're here to pledge ourselves to the Jarl. We know his warband is away raiding, and it could be a week or a month from now when they return. We also know the Jarl has put out the call for heroes. Heroes, eh? The guard was skeptical. You four? Well, I suppose I've seen stranger sights. The messenger the Jarl sent to Eofor's outpost in the frontier is still missing. That's why he needs heroes. Did you know that? He chuckled to himself. Hell winced. She needed to make him take them seriously or their journey would end here. I know you, guardsman. Your name is Garmer, right? It is... You're more experienced than us, true, and better equipped. I ask you how you felt the first time you stood before the Jarl and asked to join his herd. Was there anyone in the village whose heart was brimming with more hope of glory on that day? I suppose not. Then I ask, please, let us stand before the Jarl. The missing messenger could mean nothing. Or he could be deep in the forest with a broken ankle, praying for help. We four were raised by valiant men. Let our leader decide if we're worthy. The guard turned his attention to Aesher. I know you, he said, pointing. The goatherd's son. No one even knows who your father is. He pointed out tall Valeska next. You're the daughter of a leek farmer. Thorolf growled at the guard. At least I know your name, Thorolf. Your father was a fine warrior indeed, and you wear his bearskins. The man was favored by Odin himself, they say, a berserker on the battlefield. If you're wild-tempered like him... You're bound to kill one of your friends here, along with the enemy. I, Hell started to say. You're the only face I haven't seen, interrupted the guard, directing his blue-eyed gaze at her. Where have you been skulking these past few months? You're clever with words, I'll give you that. Who was your valiant father? I had hoped it wouldn't come to this. No good ever comes from comparing yourself to a great man, she thought. I was adopted. My father told me I was Roman. What was the name of the man who adopted you? Wolfgar Ironarms. The guard stroked his blonde beard and grinned. I don't care if you were descended from a general of Rome. The man who raised you is your true father. That's all I needed to know. Wolfgar was a great friend to this village, an excellent warrior. 
All right, then. I'll announce you four. You know there's a chance he'll ridicule you in front of the village smallholders, right? We know, Hell said. Thorolf and Aesher exchanged a surprised glance. Good fortune, said the guard, and opened one of the great ironbound doors. He stepped into the warmth of the noisy hall. The four friends stood behind him under the lintel. Jarl Marabad, the guard shouted, quieting the festivities. I have four youths from the village who answer the call. Aesher the scout is with them, and the daughter of Wolfgar. They beg you, hear them out. Do not forbid them entry. The guard winked back at the four friends and swept his arm, welcoming them into the glowing hall. When Hel set foot inside, she could scarcely believe her eyes. Her father had been a successful warrior, given her a pitcher of silver and the valuable Roman scrolls she carried on her person, yet his humble home was nothing compared to this. The great hall was so vast that Hel could hardly discern Jarl Marabad seated in his stone chair at the opposite end of the long table. The guard politely collected weapons from the four young friends. They rounded a great fire pit with spits of chicken and goat dripping fat onto the flames. When they had walked the length of the table, they stood before the most important people of the village. Hell had never been this close to the Jarl. He was muscular and tall, and also fat. He wore his black hair and beard long, halfway down his massive chest. Next to him were seated his young wife and a lean, battle-scarred bodyguard. Her heart pounded with anticipation, and she found herself short of breath. It wasn't so much that she was cowed by the impressiveness of the Jarl, it was what his lofty station represented to her. This was the moment, at last. She would be heard. Garmer said, My Jarl, these four have volunteered to go to the frontier, check on Eofor's outpost, and investigate what happened to the messenger. The bearded faces of the village smallholders turned to face them. Jarl Marabad said, Aesher, you and your friends are most welcome to lend your help. My village is stretched thin already. With the messenger gone, and no idea what state the outpost is in, and my herd across the sea, we could use it. Like that, their journey had started. Though Hell was pleased they had come this far, it annoyed her that the Jarl assumed Aesher was their leader. Why? Because he was a man? True, warriors were usually men, though there were exceptions like Freydest Eric's daughter, or Unner, the deep-minded, queen in the north. It was Hel's speech and her father's good name that had let them get to this point. Valeska was looking at the Jarl's wife, done up in her finery. Skuld was the bride's name, another Jarl's daughter from the Vend people to the northwest. She was slender and comely, with skin the color of milk, 
and straight golden hair, dressed in a garment dripping gemstones and silver. Still in the spring of youth, she made the jarl who had weathered skin, hair, and beard shot through with gray, look old by comparison. In truth, this golden woman shamed the yellow medals and banners that hung proudly in the hall. Such was her beauty. Hell nudged Valeska with her elbow, and the tall girl turned her full attention to the jarl. Marabad waved his hand, and the smallholders grumbled and picked up their plates, making room for the four friends at the table. Asher spoke up. We owe you, our jarl, allegiance. Valeska's father and Hel's father were capable men, and Thorolf has inherited the bearskins, fierceness, and bravery of his father. And what of your father, Asher? said the jarl. My father is unknown to me. Then it remains to be seen if he passed down any bravery to you. This quest should ferret out the answer, though. The well-spoken scout paused, and the young man's discomfort pleased the jarl. The crackle of the hearth fire hid the creak of Asher's leathers when he shifted on the bench. At last, Asher said, It's true, our bravery has yet to be tested. The fact that we're here to offer our help and risk life and limb for the village proves our loyalty, though. That was a weak brag. We realize the heroes of the town are away raiding. If we wait for them, whatever has befallen the messenger could pay an unwelcome visit to the outpost. Hell added, We'll ask Aeophor if they've seen the messenger or know any details. The Jarl leaned into them, said, You're well informed. Now, here's why it's important. If the outpost is lost, we risk our trade route to the south. Out in the frontier, Gepid bandits defy everything right in the world. They defy their own chiefs and the will of the gods. They raid what they can, grow nothing, and survive week to week. They will not stop until every house they encounter stands empty and deserted. It has been so for twelve winters now. The problem, I fear, is that the Gepids have kept company with the dead so long instead of burning them that they have become twisted Draugr themselves, neither alive nor dead. We were once one people, though those days are long gone. Now the Gepids have run out of villages to sack and regard our side of the frontier with jealous eyes. The four winds blow traders of all kinds to Aeophor's doorstep. The financial success of that outpost is critical to the survival of the village. Another harsh winter will soon be upon us. I can feel it in my bones. And if any gepid mischief befell my messenger, I want blood paid for blood. Do I make myself clear? You do, Jarl Marabot, said Hell. She was quick to answer this time. This got his attention, though a moment later she would wish that she hadn't. 
His response was like a fist of ice in her chest. He looked down at her from his high seat, like one would regard an insect. She swallowed and her muscles trembled, though she refused to allow herself to be ignored and let Aisha collect all the glory. Instead of wallowing in her own discomfort, she turned into it, like a ship cutting through a wave. We'll do our best to solve the mystery. The Jarl laughed in her face. Yes, I know you will. Is that not why you're here? Hopefully you'll live. I would not relish the loss of four capable young farmhands from my village, for that is what you are, until you prove otherwise to me. Nor would I commission your journey were I not in such dire straits. The Jarl's lack of confidence stung. It was then that Hell threw caution to the wind. She had already told the guard the identity of her adoptive father, and that had been their ticket in. Perhaps if she told the rest to the Jarl, he would favor them. My Jarl, you know Wolfgar Ironarms raised me like his own. Our people sacked a nearby Roman city, and he saved me, rather than putting me to the sword. I know. I was there, said Maribod. Well, Wolfgar informed me I had been the daughter of the Roman governor of that city, though I was too young to remember. Rome used to control this whole stretch, including Land, the frontier, and Gepidland. I ask now for your confidence that I will call upon the gifts of my blood, whatever they may be, to accomplish this quest and keep us alive. In the silence that followed, Hell listened to the blacksmith through the hall's open door. Buried in that clanging, a melody emerged. It was the music, a sign from the gods, reminding her to seek her destiny. The Jarl laughed again, and the small holders of the town laughed with him. You might be shorter than Valeska here, yet you're far too tall to be a Roman. Perhaps that Roman governor adopted you as well, and never told you. What is your name? Helga. Well, Helga, let me ask you this. Can you swing a sword? No. A spear, then? No. You should have kept your mouth shut, and I would have let you go with these others on the quest. Now... I think you'll be staying behind. Hell fumed. I have other skills, my Jarl. The tension in her voice was easy for all to hear. Such as... I'm a scholar. I can read runes, mix potions. Others have even called me a sorceress. The Jarl tugged at his beard thoughtfully. Hell said, They'll need me. I'm sure of it. Thorolf spoke up then. This was all her idea. Marabod exhaled, relaxed in his stone chair. Fine. All of you go. I'll expect you back for the first snows of winter. Hell burned with silent rage. 
She had only been in audience with the Jarl for a few moments and had already lost respect for him. This man had risen to the height of power in their village, so presumably he had good sense. Why not acknowledge her bravery? Or Thorolf's? Or Valeska's? The Jarl's dismissive words lit a fire in her. She was resolved more than ever to prove she was more than a farmhand. Perhaps then she would have his respect. It took them a week to reach the outpost. By the end of the first day, they had reached the forest's edge. Aesher was a competent hunter, and caught them fowl and rabbit they roasted at the campfire at night. Hel mixed the meat and seasoned it with delicious herbs in a beautifully carved bowl she jokingly called hunger. They hadn't needed the salted venison and other iron rations, so named for their resistance to spoiling, and also, perhaps, their taste, the Jarl had given them. The good food kept spirits high. So did the potential of success. Hell was silent most of the time, deep in thought, dwelling on how easy it had been for Aesir to speak with the guard and the Jarl, and how difficult it had been for her. She tried her best to not appear sullen to the others. She wanted to strengthen the bond with her three new friends. They would help their chances in battle. She heard the music again in the calls of woodland creatures, though the other three didn't. She mentioned she had been hearing it since the summer, and when she did, it made them less trustful. So, she retreated back into silence. Summer was long in the past. It was already sundown, barely after it was sunup. Thankfully, there was no rain, yet. The skies were often bruised at sunset with fast-moving clouds of violet and pink. The wooded path to the outpost was marked by a runestone every mile. The smoothed, pointed rocks were usually waist-high and chiseled with warnings, sayings, and legends. Hell had taught herself to read the language of the Romans, and the scrolls she carried with her had Tacitus translations for the runes, which she related to her friends for their entertainment, at night, by the fire. Some of the stones related the accomplishments of ancient heroes like Gunnar Hammerdson, who could fight with both hands simultaneously, and was so fast, there were those who said he had fought with three swords at once. The latest one told the legend of the god Odin, and how he gained knowledge by hanging himself like a sacrifice from the sacred tree Yggdrasil. Besides Hel, Aesir was the brightest of them, and had no trouble understanding the legends. Valeska was somewhere in between, asking many questions, punching Hel in the shoulder when Hel grew annoyed with her. The stories went over Thorolf's head entirely. The four friends spoke openly about the village and how they thought Marobod was a bad Jarl. Perhaps he had been a valiant warrior once, though he had since succumbed to age and hesitation. All he did these days is use his power to seduce weak-willed women and order the villagers around. His days of protecting his people were behind him. It was time for a young Harrel hero to emerge. If the raiding party did not return, 
Hell figured that both she and Aesher considered themselves to be that hero, though neither dared to brag the position would one day be theirs, even at Valeska's urging. They took the worn path through the forest that Aesher knew was the quickest way to the outpost. When they emerged from the canopy of trees, they saw it. A large, one-story building surrounded by a fortified wall of tall trunks sharpened at the skyward end. The whole structure was situated atop a low hill, a fortunate position for defense, should they need it. It was at sunset on the seventh day of their journey, with the sky darkening and the clouds pregnant with rain, when the four friends knocked upon the outer doors. After a long pause, a deep voice within bellowed, Who goes there? Not Aeophor, thought Hell. Had the enemy already taken the outpost? We're here on an errand for the Jarl. We seek an audience with Aeophor, she said. Heavy footsteps thudded off while the four friends waited, hands on weapons, casting glances at each other. Thorolf held out his huge palm and looked at the first drops of rain water collecting on it. The wooden drawbar slid across its iron braces and the doors opened. Within was a rectangular courtyard with the outpost itself in the center. They were greeted by a young, simple-looking man with a large, red nose, a tall woman with steel-gray hair, and... Standing next to them, Aeophor himself, old and bent. The Jarl sent you four, Aeophor said. He must be more beset than I thought. Walking across the courtyard, Aesher noticed the outer wall had already been breached near the door, then hastily boarded over. Aeophor ushered them in out of the drizzle. The warmth of the building was pleasing. He sat them down at his humble table, put some victuals before them, and poured each a measure of mead. After that, he got down to business. Sad songs are sung about the Yarrow, the vicious raids and savages of the Gepid raiders who invade his land. They will never parley or make peace with our people, including myself. So far out in the borderlands, I might be considered my own tribe. All in the Gepid's path are endangered, young and old. It is rumored they lay with corpses and feast on the flesh of the living. They are Draugr, revenants. These days they are less like men than the death shadow that swoops down during long nights upon the Misty Moors. Nobody knows where they roam after they attack. The South, I imagine... That is supposed to be where they're from. I hear things from traders who pass through. The news is that the Gepid raids are not even concentrated in this area. If I hadn't had the good sense to take in Garmund here, he said, gesturing to the red-nosed, broad-shouldered brute who had greeted them at the door. Who scared them off last time? Who knows what would have become of my poor wife and I? So, 
The Gepids waged their lonely war, inflicting cruelties on the people. They've taken part of the frontier and haunt the hills after dark. Men from the surrounding villages have been hesitant to approach for fear of attracting the attention of violent raiding parties. Do you know what became of the messenger from the village? asked Hell. Your messenger was here. I told him not to go out at night, yet he was fearless, or stupid. The message I gave him was the same thing I told you for. No doubt the Gepids laid in wait for him in the forest and claimed him for their next meal, taking his corpse with them to who knows where. These are hard times for honest folk. Sometimes in a forest clearing I vow offerings to the gods. Odin. Thor. Hoping some killer would come and put an end to the Gepids, so my business can get back up to full speed. I admit, you are not what I expected. Hell said, Sometimes the gods answer our prayers in an unusual way. We had a fixed purpose when we came here. We mean to perform the service you need and make you proud of us, or perish at the raiders' clutches in the attempt. Valeska, Asher, and Thorolf listened with grim faces. Asher said, Your wall is breached next to the main door. Is that the only place they tore down? Yes, admitted the old man. I think we can mend it, said Hell, not missing an opportunity to show off her leadership skills. I carry with me a scroll with some notes on Roman engineering. If we can get out into the forest and chop down two or three trees, we can rebuild the damaged part so it's stronger than ever. Here's my plan. When the raiders return, it will anger them to see we've mended the damage. If, say, someone were to accidentally leave the main gate unbarred, perhaps we can draw them in, fight them, and finish them. The old man slammed down his gnarled fist and stood up at the table. Fight them? Are you mad? Hell said, Thorolf here is a berserker, favored by Odin. Being a sorceress, I can brew the berserker potion for him with deathbane and other ingredients I packed for the adventure. Valeska knows how to wield a spear. She can best any man her own age at the village. Aesir is an ace with his bow and arrow. We've been living by the grace of his hunter's skill. Aeophor rubbed his ancient chin. You have bravery, I'll give you that. Beckoning the enemy closer isn't something that ever occurred to me. He sat down. All right, I agree. I've had a good long life. Yet for the sake of my wife, Grilla, and Garmund, I hope your plan does not fail. It won't, she said with confidence. In truth, the stratagem played out well in her mind, luring them into the courtyard, closing it, then having Thorolf engage the raiding party with his axe and Valeska with her spear while Aesir picked them off with arrows from atop the outpost roof. Do you think they'll attack tonight? No, 
Aofor said. You're certain? The old man nodded. They attack when the moon is full. It drives them mad with bloodlust. The moon is not yet full for three or four more nights. Then we have time. The next day, after breakfast, they went out into the forest, felled three trees, and brought back the wood. Under Hell's direction, they mended the wall. To cut and lug the wood back up the hill to the outpost was heavy work. Thorolf was the strongest of the group and did most of the swinging and lifting himself. The young warrior felled the trees one by one with his battle-axe. Thorolf carried one end of each heavy log while the others, with simple-minded Garmund, Aefor's helper pitching in, gathered around to lift the other. They brought the wood back to the wall while the cold rain seeped into their bones. Doing something challenging together helped raise the spirits of the group. They dug deep into the ground and lowered in each log. Thorolf pulling on one side with rope and the rest of the group pushing from the other, using the old Roman technique, fitting the wood tightly together so each piece was strengthened by the other. While the others finished, Hell retrieved from her pack some dried and crushed deathbane. She brewed it into a potion mixed with strong mead provided by the hospitable Aeophor. It was for Thorolf on the night of the skirmish, if it ever came. When her mind was completely focused, mixing the ingredients, she noticed the music again. She looked around the room she was using. Aeophor and his wife Grilla were there. Hell could tell by their faces they had not heard it. She said nothing and went back to her task. Berserkers often drank the deathbane mixture while they prepared for battle, and this would be Thorolf's first time. It was a kind of poison, and Hell knew in theory how to dilute it and brew it in a way that brought out a man's valor without killing him, she hoped. She mixed the concoction with care and passed it below Thorolf's nose for approval. The brutish warrior's lips curved into a smile. He was ready. Knowing the enemy was coming gave time for fear to set in. During the afternoon, Valeska and Aesher were letting off steam by arguing. Valeska was determined to break the close-knit camaraderie that Hell had been so carefully weaving since they had left the village. The woman athlete laid in to Aesher with contrary words. Is it true that you raced a red stag across the Elbe Plains and lost? You told everyone you were faster than him, and you risked injury to prove that you could win? This is what I heard. That was sheer vanity. You ran embracing the wind, taking measured strides, mastering footwork, and then he outran you and disappeared into the forest, where he belonged, the stronger contender. You failed then, and you'll fail now. No band this young has ever survived an encounter with a gepid raiding party. After her speech, she took a swig of mead, then offered the cup to Aesher. Aesher refused the drink, and his response was clear-headed. Friend Valeska, you've had your say about the red stag and me. Well, it was mostly the mead doing the talking. The truth is this. 
When the race was going on full in the field, I was the strongest runner. You know I hunt the animals of the forest for food, though I never tried to bring the red stag down, even when my stomach grumbled. He's my friend. He was never afraid of me. We ran together many times. That summer afternoon when we raced, he was in his naked glory, and I had my equipment on. We were evenly matched for a while, though the boys from the village were not the only ones watching the race. A hungry gray wolf, an outcast from his pack, closed in on us when we approached the forest. I maneuvered myself in between the wolf and the red stag, and the hungry predator attacked. The legging of my leather armor kept me safe, though the wolf was desperately strong, brought me down and pulled me toward the trees with my leg in its jaws, while the stag ran into the forest. I was granted one final chance, and I gave blood for blood. My sword plunged, and the ordeal was over. Through my own hands, I finished off the beast. There would be no furry wolf face gnawing and gloating over his banquet in the dark of the forest. Often, for a measure of courage, fate spares a man. Though I was worn out, I survived, came through with my life, and returned safe to the village. Now that I think of it, I can't recall any foot race you entered, Velasco, which bears comparison. I don't brag when I say neither you nor the stag were ever much celebrated for facing danger in actual battle. If you were truly keen or courageous like you claim, you would be with the Jarl's herd now, instead of here, untested, with the likes of us. The Gepids may best you and Thorolf if Hell's plan fails. I think they will find me different. Thorolf is much stronger than I, that's certain. Yet sheer strength is no match for a cool head in combat. If we survive and manage to protect the outpost, then I'll join you and go bravely to mead the morning after. Everyone was nervous, except, it appeared, Hell, who was measured in her speech and calm even when the night of the full moon arrived. It was time. Of course, she was afraid for her own life and for her friends, though she knew acting confident would in turn inspire confidence in them. Over the southern moors, down through the post-rain mist, the gods-forsaken gepids came, greedily loping, hunting for prey at the repaired outpost. Moments after sunset, under the cloud murk that the full moon hid behind, two groups of five moved toward the outer wall. They did not approach with fear. This was not the first time they had scouted the grounds. The first group, barrel-chested brutes, with shields and swords, arrived at the gates. The iron-banded door creaked on its hinge when their filthy hands touched it. Hell had planned it so they would think the door had been left unbarred due to some oversight, and the plan worked. Hot with battle lust, the raiders slipped through the open door and ran shrieking into the courtyard, maddening for blood, pacing the length of the floor with their loathsome tread. A baleful glow, flame more than light, flared from their sunken eyes. By the light of the moon, their skin looked covered with ash. They charged the shadows of Aeophor and his wife inside the outpost building, ready to shoulder the inner door and create mayhem. 
Aesher took aim at the rushing raiders from his position on the roof. He had planted arrows in the thatch all around him. In one quick motion, he drew a sharp arrowhead to his fist, held his breath, and released. It flew true to its mark, hitting one of the invaders in the chest, tail feathers springing to the nipple. The victim let his curved sword drop and stumbled forward, arrowhead lodged in his liver. He lay dying, panting his life away into the earth of the courtyard. The raider at his side readied his weapon and faced Aesher's direction. Too late. The scout had already loosed a second arrow that hit the second gepid low in the groin. The arrow hit him under the pelvic bone and transfixed him there. The invader stopped and immediately sank down on his haunches, then fell to one side. He stretched out on the ground like an earthworm. Then the mist of death came swirling down and closed his eyes. At Hell's signal, Thorolf, who had downed the deathbane potion, came screaming out of the shadow, brandishing his battle-axe over his head. The young berserker was carried forth on a wave of battle frenzy, ready to let his weapon drink the blood of their enemies. A third raider raised his wooden shield, and Thorolf's blow hit it squarely. Thorolf ripped the shield from his enemy's grip, with the axe still embedded in it, and used his bearskin-lined boot to unpry his weapon, then drew back to bring the heavy blade down on the unarmored man's shoulder. The shieldless gepid looked like a cut slab of beef, the shoulder and arm practically separated from the torso. Bones sheared through, hot blood steaming the night air. The victim let out a high-pitched yell and lashed out with his remaining arm, cutting at Thorolf desperately with his blade. The dying marauder slashed Thorolf across the wrist and the belly. The bearskin armor protected his belly, though the berserker's thick wrist was bloodied. Thorolf's opponent fared more poorly. Down he went, like a felled tree, still gripping his sword, nourishing the earth generously from his wounded shoulder. The man's eyes met Thorolf's in the dim light, and the gepid spoke something softly in a different language. It sounded a bit like, wait. Yet Thorolf did not wait. He raised the axe and brought it down on the head of his enemy again and again, until the gepid's skull cracked open and the exposed brains were bathed in moonlight. The last Gepid stopped to take note of his felled companions. That was when Valeska stepped out of the shadow at her position by the doors. Now she was on one side and Thorolf on the other. The Gepid threw his sharpened dagger at the closest target, Valeska. It was a decent shot, though Valeska was like a Valkyrie in that moment, lithe form flowing like the waters of the Rhine. She sidestepped death. When the warrior woman closed in, the Gepid raised his sword to parry the attack, though Valeska's spear thrust was too strong. The quivering haft slid along the Gepid's blade edge, and the point penetrated deep into the raider's chest, breaking through the ribcage to drink his heart's blood. Now the second group of five raiders came barreling through the outer door, rushing past the engaged fighters toward Hell's position. Quick Valeska intervened. The tall woman let out a half-growl and speared one of the gepids in the back. The shaft pierced the invader from kidney to diaphragm. He left his feet and thudded, forehead against the ground. At that moment, Thorolf shouted his fierce war cry into the night, 
and all the courtyard turned to him. The berserker fought on like he did not feel the wrist wound at all. The potion was working. The four remaining raiders converged on Thorolf like the fingers of a hand closing to make a fist. One grabbed the pommel of a throwing dagger, drew back his arm, and threw. Thorolf was already screaming, running at full speed to meet his attacker. The gepid was rattled. His arm trembled with fear at the oncoming warrior bristling with bear fur, and he hardly had a hope of hitting his target, yet he made a lucky shot. The flying blade hit Thorolf underneath the chin. The berserker's knees instantly gave out, and he tumbled face first into the ground. Thorolf tried to stand, though the other three raiders converged, stabbing him with their sword points again and again. One of the invaders dropped his weapon. Aesher had hit him in the throat with an arrow. The gepid he shot knew something was wrong, though he was not certain he had been hit until he felt the point of the arrowhead protruding from the other side of his neck. He sank to the floor and coughed. Blood flowed from his mouth and nostrils. That was enough of a beating for the three raiders who remained. They retreated back to the open doors, and bent to pick up Thorolf on their way out, one grabbing the berserker's shoulders and the other two grabbing his boots. Hel couldn't see if her friend was alive or dead. She and Velasca ran to catch them, though the invaders moved fast, retreating into the shadow of the wall. Hel looked up at Aesher. Shoot! It was too late. The invaders had disappeared. Morning came, and what was left of the troop gathered in the outpost kitchen. The beaten Gepid's departure left the ignominious marks of their flight, where they'd skulked away to their lair with Thorolf's bloody corpse, in order to do who knows what. The old man and his wife wondered greatly at the invaders' footprints. Aeofor said, I've heard it said by traders who come from the south that they've seen the Gepids prowling the moors. I was convinced they were Draugr, the living dead, though I see now that with enough skill they can be killed like ordinary men. Their faces, though, their eyes. Some say the Gepids mingled with a tribe of Picts, and some say they mingled with toads. It's a fact that they smell like rotting carcasses and move unnaturally. I'm not sure if they're men or monsters. They're fatherless creatures, and their whole ancestry is hidden in a past of demons and ghosts. They dwell apart from civilized men, among wolves in the hills or on windswept crags and treacherous narrow strips of land. A few miles to the south, a frost-stiffened wood keeps watch beside a ruin, some Roman city long abandoned. The graveyard of that place is far too large for the size of the town. Its stones and monuments are a maze of crumbling white stone. At night there, something uncanny happens. One can hear music mingled with the wind. The unearthly piping comes from the largest mausoleum among the graves. My guess is that is where they live. The Romans buried their dead instead of cleanly burning them 
Such crypts often contain a catacomb that keeps the remains of some ancient family. Hell perked up, and her ears burned when Aeophor spoke of music. Her heart beat faster, and she leaned in to make sure she took in every word. In any case, Aeophor said, at this graveyard's gates, adventurers halt. The heart in flight from pursuing hounds will turn to face them with firm-set horns and die at the ironwork rather than slip into that cursed area. That is a no-good place. They set out immediately. On the way to the ruined city, they spoke little and were in low spirits. Hell had come up with a plan to defend the outpost, and it had more or less worked, though their close friend had fallen. She needed to bolster their morale now. When they journeyed close enough, they all commented on the odd echoes of music. They heard it, though she had heard it first. Was this a sign from the gods? Would she be the next Jarl? Their village had never had a woman leader. Perhaps she would be the first. Why not? She cared for its people and could certainly take better care of them than Marabod. This was what she wanted more than anything, and it was what she deserved. She was resolved to see her destiny through. By nightfall, they had come upon the ruin. Amongst the crumbling remains of what once were the walls of Roman buildings jutted the bent iron gates of the great cemetery. Bleached monuments within gleamed in the moonlight. Storm clouds held in the distance. Their senses were keen and observant to the slightest bird warble in the trees or scurry in the brush, even though they were weary from the outpost battle and the loss of their friend. Hell said, The wind blows up stormy weather. We'll have shelter in there, fighting the enemy. If we don't end it now, more messengers will vanish. Then the outpost, then our prosperity, then our people. By the gods, even though we're down a man, help depends again on us and us alone. When we arrive back in our village, we'll be heroes, compensated with lavish gifts for our trouble. The last time heroes returned home, they each received a coffer of coiled gold. I can tell by your faces you both miss Thorolf. So do I. Do not grieve. It's always better to avenge, dear ones, than to indulge in mourning. For every one of us, living in this world means waiting for our end. Let whoever can win glory first. When a warrior is gone, that will be his best and only legacy. We've not been long on the trail of this enemy, I guarantee they will not get away, not to the dimly lit moorlands, nor windswept crags, nor the ocean floor. They'll have nowhere to flee. Endure your troubles today. Bear up, and be the heroes I expect you to be. It was a gamble, assuming the yoke of leadership, even though she knew that Aesher and everyone they encountered expected that he was the one who led them. To her surprise, the gamble worked, her speech caused no argument, even from Valeska. It lifted their spirits and quickened their pace. Hell had been right to trust her own feelings. Her time was coming. What had been the main road through the ghost town was still marked with gepid tracks wherever they had cut through to get to the center. 
dragging the body of their friend and ally. The friends proceeded undismayed across wet grass, overgrown lots, and large bits of stone, skirting swampy areas that reflect the darkening sky. They walked single file through the marsh, toward the crumbling gates of the central boneyard. A partial wall blocked their view, something beyond caught their attention. Next to the graveyard gates was a length of unblemished white cloth, fabric that flowed upon the wind, even though... At the moment, there was no wind. Hell heard the music clearly here. She said, Do not look directly at that white cloth. Why? asked Valeska. Hell had read a legend about such things. It's a sorcerer's trick, a trap left by the Gepids for us. If you stare at it too long, you won't be able to look away. Once we're entranced... They'll send butchers out of their lair to kill us, while we're unable to defend ourselves. Asher and Valeska did what Hell advised, shielding their eyes from the blanched fabric while they walked by. They skirted dismal trees, growing at odd angles above gray stones. There was a pool of still water infested with reptiles and croaking frogs. Soon they were at the towering central mausoleum that had a spire taller than their great hall in their village. It was guarded by two flame-eyed gepids with spears. The haunting music could be heard by all, echoing from the darkened entrance. The three friends took cover behind a large gravestone, and Asher knocked an arrow. When Hell gave the signal, he drew the arrowhead to his fist, peeked out from behind his cover, and shot. It flew true to its mark, hitting one of the invaders in the neck. The victim let out a hideous gurgling sound, let his spear drop from his shocked hand, and fell backward. The guard at his side readied his weapon, though he didn't have enough time to shout the alarm. The wily scout had already loosed a second arrow that punched through the man's chest. Gasping, the second enemy went down to bite the dust. The young heroes closed in on their fallen foes. One of the foul-smelling gepids had an iron keyring. Hell took it. Asher and Valeska stepped in first, weapons drawn, with hell behind, casting long, amber-haloed shadows of them with a lit torch. The inner entrance to the mausoleum yawned before steps arranged like a great spiral that led down. Within it was musty and sharp-smelling, like a poorly ventilated hall after a season of heavy rain. There were a few empty spaces in the walls where corpses ought to be, They looked all about them for some other way. It got cold and damper by degrees when they descended. Down, down they went. The stone became less worked and more roughly hewn, like a tunneled-out cavern. Soon they had walked a spiral deeper into the earth than the mausoleum's spire was tall. At the bottom of the stairs was a door, It was a sore blow to the companions, a hurt to each and every one, when they came to Thorolf's head at the landing. Hel took the head, placed it in a sack, and secured it to her adventuring pack. I'll be damned if we're going to let them decorate their home with our friend, she said. Valeska and Aesher smiled grimly. An iron key they had retrieved from the down guard opened the door. The torchlight illuminated a storeroom, where the hateful Gepids kept the treasures 
that they had raided over the years. They were interrupted by an eerie call, not the music, more like a conch shell being blown. From where the four friends had come, armed gepids with eyes of flame, responded to the call of that awful battle bugle. The one who commanded them was a thick figure with the body of a man and the antlers of a stag. This creature drew a great horned bow and shot Asher in the thigh, while the scout shot his own volley at the charging gepids that spilled toward them. Asher's aim did not fail. He dropped one, two, three of the enemy, killing his way back up the stairs. Then a second seasoned shaft from the enemy leader stuck deep in Asher's flank. The accuracy of Asher's shots got poorer and poorer. He was swiftly overwhelmed, prodded by barbed spears, and rudely kicked off the stairs, plummeting to the bottom of the central shaft that was filled with ruined bits of stone and skeletons of men from bygone days of Roman glory. An impressive and loathsome sight. Hell could not believe Asher, her rival, even though she had liked the man well enough, had sacrificed himself for them, for her. She had attempted to outdo him at every turn on their journey, to win a greater portion of the group's respect. She had not been woman enough to face that there might have been a more worthy leader among them. Had her friends known her innermost thoughts, she would have lost repute with them, not that any of it mattered now if they didn't survive their current predicament. Valeska and Hell's backs were at the treasure room, a cul-de-sac with no exit. The women were outnumbered at least ten to one. Hell's mind was racing. There must be some way to survive this. The stag lord approached. Valeska gritted her teeth, indifferent to death. She would soon meet the menace of the dark. An item lent to the tall warrior woman by Hell when they had left the outpost proved to be of no small importance. The scholar sorceress had handed her a chain-link shirt of mail, a rare item Hell's father had worn into battle himself. The metal had been tempered in blood and had never failed anyone who had fought and faced the worst dangers. This was not the first time it had been called upon to perform heroic feats. Valeska turned to Hell. You've done your best for us, and if we survive this, I'll always have your back. If this combat kills me, take care of yourself, and be sure also, my beloved friend, to send my father my portion of the treasures we received. Let him take note of it, and take it into his old age. With this spear and this armor, I shall gain glory or die. After these words, Valeska charged the enemy, thrusting into the undulating line of reeking gepids, arm pinned against the rough rock of the catacomb. She knocked the enemy one by one into the chasm. Hell followed behind with their only source of light. After losing a few more of their number, the stag lord and his raiders retreated up the stairs. Their antlered foe sent warrior after warrior charging down at Valeska, yet, even though she had the inferior tactical position, she bested each one. It took an eternity to fight their way back to the top. The few gepids remaining who had haunted those caverns, scavenged and existed in the dark for years, sensed this woman was getting the best of them, so they lunged together, clutching, stabbing, 
and managed to seize her in their grip. Yet her body, for all that, remained unscathed. The cut of their savage daggers and curved blades failed to rip her war shirt. She twisted free. The enemy had her cornered, though. Their half-human opponent, the stag lord, whose face, now that it was illuminated more closely by the licking flame of Hell's Dying Torch, was more like a bleached stag's skull that had been repurposed into a helmet. With all her courage, Valeska thrust her exhausted spear arm forward. The tip of her weapon hit the skull helm and sang. The spear cracked the bleached helm, yet refused to bite into the scalp beneath. Her weapon had spared him and failed the woman in her need. Two gepids closed in and grabbed Valeska on either side, each one clutching an arm, and they brought her before their leader, the stag lord, whose face was now visible. He leaned in to gloat over his capture and leered at hell. Valeska glanced at her friend, and that look said it all. The sure-footed fighter was defeated. Even the strongest of warriors eventually stumbles and falls. The Gepid readers stood still, like dead men, awaiting the stag lord's command. The Gepid leader bent and sliced Valeska's throat like one would sacrifice an animal to the gods. When the warrior woman's lifeblood poured out onto the earthen floor of the catacomb, the stag lord was entranced. Every spurt was beauty to him. He couldn't look away. It was like the haunting music had been for hell. Then suddenly, a thought came to her. This was the moment for which she had been waiting. Drawing her knife, she stepped between the deferential gepids, behind their distracted leader, and sliced his throat. He fell to one knee and looked up at her, his own blood gushing out over his clutching hands, trying to stem the tide of mortal red to no avail. Then he did something strange. His lips curved into a smile, like he was at peace with his life ending, or perhaps he simply appreciated that he had finally been bested, thinking previously that was impossible. There was still the matter of the leader's men. They could have whirled upon her and thrown her into the pit. They could have stabbed her with blades or beaten her with rocks. Yet they did not. The gods had decided Hell's victory, and the Gepids knew it. Instead, they gave her space to walk without interference. Two of them brought out a wooden coffer the length of her arm and opened the lid. The last light of her torch fell on the glint of gold and silver pieces. An arm band in the shape of a snake, a gold ring with a snarling hound signet. They laid the container at her feet. They expected her to lead them. It was their way. She had killed the stag lord, and they hoped she would take his place. Were these now her people? Her looks had always been darker compared to the heralds of her village. She was herald. Was she also Gepid? She could return here after she had received her due from the people who had raised her. She could unite the two peoples, make the raiding stop, or focus a war effort on another group grow their borders with a combined force of Northmen. She had survived the fall of her enemy. She set the bag with the head of Thorolf in one of the alcoves at the mausoleum entrance. There was no point in being sentimental now. She hefted the treasure box and left the catacomb. 
When she stepped into the moonlight, the last few silent, confused gepids took the first few steps with her, abandoning the moldering gray tunnels and the remains of the stag lord. Then she distanced herself from them. She went her way, they went theirs. She headed away along the footpaths and trails she knew, wrestling with the loot she had carried all the way from the dank dungeon. In a week, she cleared the forest and approached within sight of her village. Several men strode out to greet her and help carry the weight. In she came to address Maribod, courage proven and glory secure. The treasure was spilled at the feet of the Jarl, a delight to behold for his guards and the two smallholders who had come to see him that day. They stared at it in awe. Marabod was silent. So, Jarl, I'm glad to bring this prize from the haunted graveyard in the frontier. It's a token of triumph, and I tender it to you. I barely survived the battle underground. It was a hard-fought, desperate affair. If the gods had not helped me, the outcome would have been even more disastrous. Although my friends were hard-edged, they did not survive. The gods allowed me to gain the advantage for a moment, and that was all it took to deliver the fatal wound to their leader. The other gepids were cowed when he fell. I have avenged the evil done to the heralds. Jarl Marabad examined the coffer of gold with raided treasures from years past. A protector of your people, though none of your friends survived? That is suspicious. Who knows if command of the evil Gepids has not fallen to you, clever girl, and you wait for us to relax our vigilance and slay us when you have the advantage, like you did the Gepid leader? Hell was speechless. And Aesher, I find it hard to believe he died while you did not. Why so concerned for Aesher? said a soft voice above them. You sent them all to their deaths, did you not? It was the beauteous young wife of Maribod, Scold. Blonde hair swept down from her head. She leaned on the railing of the second story of the hall that looked out onto the Jarl's long central table. Because he was my son, said the Jarl angrily. Ah, said Skuld, it is what I suspected. She walked slowly downstairs, revealing she was heavy in her belly with child. You swore there were none who could challenge our son to assume the stone chair. Woman, I... He said no more, for he had been caught in an emotional moment, saying more than he should have in front of his bodyguards, in front of the smallholders. Skuld said, You play at being a great warrior, yet your greatness has passed. This young woman has beaten the lord of the Draugr. You should respect her. She leads the inglorious dead whom Odin will not claim. Marabod flinched. He was trapped by his own words. Respect her? Mind your tongue. Skuld would not be silenced. My Jarl, you will not let her escape, will you? Marabod stared at her. 
You said so yourself. She is a threat. Don't tell me what to do! This village still follows my orders. Be thankful it is not you who suffers this fate. Hang her, he said, pointing at Hell. Hell was frozen, wide-eyed, where she stood. Had she heard the Jarl correctly? Two guardsmen, Garmer and the Jarl's silent bodyguard, took Hell by the arms and led her to the great ash tree that stood before the great hall. The first snows had started to fall upon the village. She had accomplished the quest during the time given her by the Jarl. Marobad brought out with him into the cold air a ship's rope used for mooring and fashioned it into a noose, measuring out the length so the condemned woman's toes could not touch the ground. He said, You claim to be a daughter of the Romans. Our people sacked Rome and plundered her treasures. So shall it be with you. Hell was empty inside while they looped the rope over a tall branch. Her skin still hummed with shock. She had made a grievous mistake coming back to seek glory. She strangely found herself pleading with the man who had condemned her. She looked through tearful eyes at Maribod and choked out the words, What can I do? To make me change my mind? He said, Nothing. She kept staring at him, searching for words. She found none. Nothing, he repeated. The guards used a second rope to bind her hands, then thrust her head into the noose and yanked her high off the ground. Why did I step into the boots of a great man? This was her last clear thought. Then mortal terror seized her muscles and panic flooded her brain. The rope bit deep into her neck, strangling her. Each time she blinked, the blackness was longer. She struggled to stay conscious. She wanted to live. She deserved to live. By the gods, I can't breathe, were her last desperate thoughts. Her feet danced for a while. Then it was over. She was adrift in formless dark, like spilled ink, all around her. She could discern the same eerie notes she had heard in her sleep, the same music that had heralded her call to adventure and led her to the catacomb. The song was so clear now. Vague shapes came into focus. The tree, the great hall, the other village buildings. Everything had lost its color and appeared to her in shades of gray. Her hands were free. She reached up, surprised she had the strength to grab the rope and free herself from the noose. Her neck was injured. It was painful when she tried to tilt up her head. The double doors to the Jarl's great hall were open. A long-legged man, playing a bone-white flute, stood at the end of the table behind the great stone chair. She knew who he was the instant she saw him. My true father, Loki. She crept inside. The fire pit was dying. Embers still burned within, though they glowed green, not orange. Loki pulled out the stone chair when Hel approached. Her dagger and bowl were laid out for her, 
a place setting for an approaching meal. The chair was not exceedingly wide like she had remembered. This could not have accommodated the Jarl's ever-widening backside, though it was a perfect fit for her. When she sat down, the knowledge came flooding into her mind at once. Of course, she realized, I am the daughter of Loki. Therefore, I am a goddess. The other gods had been mortal once. Odin himself hung from a branch of the world tree to receive the knowledge of the runes. Then Wolfgar, his wife, everyone she had ever known in the village who had died of disease, hunger, or an accident during their mortal lifetime, even strangers she had never before laid eyes upon, silently filed in, took their seats upon their benches, obediently waiting for her command. She beckoned her adoptive mother and father to sit on her right and left. Of all the people she had met in life, these two had given her the most comfort. None of her ghostly guests burned brightly like they had in life, of course, though they were not prone to disagreement, either. She could feel echoes of each individual essence, and was grateful she was not alone. She would care for them, and they would need her care until the arrival of Ragnarok, the end of days, perhaps longer. So be it. She had always been patient. Now she would have eternity, or however long a measure of time gods have, to delve into the secrets of the world, its peoples, the stars, the language of runes, sorcery. She would be able to pursue everything for which her mind hungered. In a way, she had achieved everything she had ever wanted, though not in the way she expected. With a heavy heart, seasoned with a pinch of dark humor, she thought, Perhaps when I prayed to the gods for a position of recognition and leadership, I should have been more specific. Well, hello, Victor. How are you today? Hey, Josh. Good. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. You know, life's moving along. People are starting to go back out into the world. Uh, looks like we'll be uh, maybe going back to, to regular old-ass life here soon. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to get in the studio with you again and record. That'll be awesome. Yeah, man, we got big plans for the future. <clears throat> yes, indeed. Should um also note that Today is the the last official episode of Inside the Sound of Fear. Ah, uh, that's a pity. <laughs> so we want to, first of all, extend a very uh, big thank you to all of the people that listened through this podcast and have stuck with us and subscribed and downloaded. And if you're new and you're just listening to this first one, please go back and listen to the other ones. Um because it's a great show, and you don't have to listen to them in any specific order, really. They're, it's um, it's it's what they consider uh, evergreen content, so you can kind of take it in however you want. There's no nothing. The only thing we tied to a specific time is that you will know it's COVID because we talk about that because that happened in the middle of this show, which I don't know how we would have avoided not talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, is, do you have anything you'd like to say, Victor? 
yeah, no, just um, thanks for everyone who subscribed, uh, downloaded, talked about the show. Really appreciate it. You know, Bill, James, Matt, uh, all of you guys, Ashley. It's really been tremendous support from the community, and we really, really appreciate it. And um, yeah, also uh, thanks to Panka Kunava for contributing the music, which has been awesome. Yeah, uh, it's the intro and the outro music. Uh, very happy with that. And uh, yeah, I'm sorry this is the last official episode. I think we may have one unofficial one coming after this um, that I'm looking forward to. But there's also lots of bright stuff in the future that I'm looking forward to on separate podcasts. Um, awesome. Yeah. Well, you we can, you know, the the concept of this podcast is going to evolve, you know, like this could this might be the beginning of where it's not just necessarily inside the sound of fear is what we continue to call it, but the podcast will probably never end. There's going to be subsequent ones. Um, like Victor's talked about before he's got a book, uh, another book that we're going to do. And I also have a friend that wrote a book about poetry. So, you know, we're going to have kind of some varying content on this whole, uh, podcast adventure which i guess we'll just consider this a kind of a network of of different content so yeah and it's been a lot of fun yeah it's been for uh, me too it's been really cool um now this story echoes that you uh that we're discussing here today yes sir echoes was also uh in a book correct yeah, that's right. You um, talk about that because that's how I first read this story. You actually um, got me a copy of that fantasy novel, or I think I bought it actually. Um, cool. Before, quite a while, so I read this story a while ago. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, Echoes appeared first in um, in an anthology called Yggdrasil's Shadow. And um, that was quite a challenge to get in there, but um, I don't I don't really remember off the top of my head. But I think the story is either first or last in the book. Both of them are really great spots to be in if you're a writer featured with other writers, because that means the you know the the publisher really liked the story. Like either it, it, they want to engage people with it or they want to stick the landing with it. Um, either way, it's a really good spot to be in. So I was super honored to be uh, right. And, you know, I, I think uh, maybe uh, like Cinder Harrell's in there and, um, uh, you know, Christine Morgan. Those are writers that I really admire and read. So it was really neat to be um, shoulder to shoulder with those guys. Um, but, yeah, um, it's one of the only stories I've gotten fan mail for. And, oh, wow. uh, yeah, the, the really easy... Um, way to talk about how it got into that book is just to say, I submitted something to the publisher. They refused it. You know, they, they, uh, they rejected it. And, um, they were like, yeah, we really like your writing, but this just isn't the right fit for this book. And, um, I was like, well, I have this other idea, um, which is kind of, a. It's a revisionist take on Beowulf, uh, and um, it deals with the goddess of death. And they were like, we'd really like to read that. And um, 
so the problem was when I promised that to them, uh, there was only like a couple of weeks before their deadline of when they can't read stories anymore because they, they got to get to the editing phase. Um, so yeah, they took a couple of days to reply to me. So anyway, the the net math was that I had two and a half weeks to write this story. And weirdly, it ended up being a novelette, like it's over 10,000 words. Um, it just poured out of me. And um, I I think it's one of the best things I ever wrote. Uh, it's um, it, it was really difficult to write it in that short period of time. I, it was basically, I, I did nothing else. Like I did nothing else in my life I, other than eat and sleep uh, and write this. <laughs> so um, I wouldn't recommend that. And I don't want to do that again. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, just because something can be done doesn't mean it should be done. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because here in my notes for this episode is from you, you know, a person can write a novel at uh, greater than 10,000 words in two weeks, though that doesn't mean it should be done. No, it's uh, I was a little burned out after that. I was like, oh, OK, yeah, it's done. But I, I was bet. really I, honestly, I was really happy that it turned out well at all. I was a little surprised that it turned out well, but it turned out really well. And um, yeah, it's it's basically um, it follows the it, it's, uh, you know, in a, an ensemble. Well, you've, you you just heard the story. So it's it's an ensemble piece, sword and sorcery. Uh, you know, dark fantasy, I guess you could say it's, it fits into all those categories. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a band of adventurers that go, uh, on a quest to, uh, help their tribe. And, um, uh, you know, they, they all, uh, embrace various fates, uh, and there's a twist at the end and, um, you know, I, I thought it was a, a really cool, lesson in how the powerful stay powerful and um you know there's a lot of modern sort of advice in there that it's you know that stuff's been happening since the dark ages obviously so uh yeah yeah all right um it's a great fantasy story uh y you know you you set it up really well with all the characters kind of assembling in the beginning with all of their different traits they bring to the table you know it's a good fantasy novel is always like or or, or even film or movie is like it's it's almost like you got to assemble the crew first like a heist movie at the beginning yep and everyone has their their thing they bring to the table and uh the scholar is always the one that's never really valued up front <laughs> right but they come in handy right that's true um yeah and the scholar in this story is the one responsible for getting the team together so uh exactly. yeah she's sort of the danny ocean of this group yeah and you know, I would think when you're going on kind of a, a, an adventure like this, like having the person that can read all the ancient texts might be the single-handedly most important person. Like, it's like having someone that can read a map. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how are we going to get there? What are we going to do when we get there? Or like if Indiana Jones never knew how to read hieroglyphics or interpret, you know, where the uh, booby traps would be in a building, like you need someone that knows that. Yeah, yeah. That can spot that kind of stuff. Yeah, and somebody that can read and write in the Dark Ages is pretty special. Like, that's uh, oh, yeah. not common. No, uh, I would imagine it was not very common. Yeah. 
So yeah, um, I did, did a ton of research for this, and it was awkward because I I just I didn't have time to to ever not be writing. So I just did the research while I wrote while I wrote it. So you know sometimes I would stop, look something up, but most of the time I would just write for what I thought the the truth was, and then I went back and researched it in the editing phase and built it out or deleted stuff if I had to. That wasn't right. That's really awesome. Yeah. So I mean these Nordic. Figures, you know, they're. I, I think they're familiar to a lot of people for, uh, for reasons because they're, you know, they're 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 like real characters, right? So some of them are real. Yeah, the the, the main characters are. I made them all up, but um, the you know Jarl Marobod is real, and um, uh, the the two warrior women that um that Hell brings up at one point or another are both real, um, you know. And every time you say hell, her name, I um, I immediately think of one of my favorite beers, which is like a hell's lager. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I was like, oh, is, that, is that where that comes from? Were you thinking of beer when you came up with that name? Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe a nice, um, a nice lager. You know, uh, there's a, <laughs> there's a really cool uh, brewery here actually in Washington. Um, uh, Odin, the Odin brewery. Yeah. Which is cool. I mean, the name is Odin, but all of their beers are like, they have one called like Asgardia Pale. They have Hell's Lager and they all have prolific, you know, like Nordic figures on the cans, which. Very cool. When I was reading this, I was like, I could just kind of organize all my cans of beer and make them act out the story together. Yes. Well, I, I, <laughs> I you know, as you can tell from the stories in this book alone, I, I mean, I love Nordic mythology. It's one of my favorite. Oh, yeah. I don't think it's used very often. Um, although, you know, uh, Neil Gaiman's book, uh, Norse mythology came out a couple of years ago and, and that's definitely improved the profile of Nordic mythology to modern audiences. But, um, you know, a lot of people write about Greek and Roman mythology, uh, but, uh, Nordic, not so much. Uh, and I think it is just as rich, uh, a well to dip from and, um, yeah, really, um, really like it. Uh, like the the original stories and i like the revisionist stories and yeah well you move to the right state to be into that kind of stuff because it just washington or the northwest in general just rings like like a kind of nordic presence which maybe is why someone started a brewery here called odin it makes sense <laughs> yeah there's a there's a lot of swedish stuff here in seattle um there's a, a nordic museum that i've been to that's awesome right. We've talked about that before, yeah. Yeah, I uh, I, I took uh, took a copy of the book to them, and um, they ordered a few few more copies, so they had it for sale in their uh, <laughs> oh, gift really store cool. for a while. That. Yeah, that's really cool. I never I, you know, I never even thought of that for a promotional uh, means for a book, you know, or like because it's true. Every time I've gone to like an art show or an art gallery or somewhere like that, they always have some literature in there that is usually from like local artists or stuff, you know, like that. And yeah, that's really clever. You thought of that. Yep. Uh, well, yeah, my friend Bob mentioned, uh, Hey, why don't you, um, go down to the museum and see if they want to, they want to buy it. And and I was like, yeah, I think I'll do that. Um, and, um, yeah, you know, I got in, I got in to see the nice. exhibits as well and, and they, they bought a couple of copies. So that was cool. That is cool. Maybe I should uh, talk to the Odin brewery for you. I go there almost every Friday. Interesting. I like um, that idea. 
Yeah, I'm not much of a beer drinker these days, but um, I know, yeah. I'd make an exception if they were, if they were. A I think client. you would have to because you and I have talked about a, a you know a, a real loggers before. You know, like a a, a true, um, you know, like German lager or even just a true European lager is hard to come by. And like even in the states, people will say it's a lager, but like it's still got cornflake in it or some shit like that where this one is like it it it's like an old world recipe it's almost got this kind of hint of like a spice on the back end of it that i heard is like when they made their beer you know they're like well this should be a nordic lager like that's why it's called the hell's lager man yeah (laughs) i'm 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 making a note of it yeah it's a very cool brewery it's down here in tacoma cool um they did not sponsor this episode, by the way. Oh, they should have. Because before we started the recording, Victor and I were talking about... Um, if they had, <laughs> then we would have sampled some and given a review on the show. That's right. We would have. Um, we were talking about, you know, like, exploitative marketing in TV and film, and we were kind of laughing at that uh, mm-hmm. before we started the show. We were just kind of vamping there on that... Uh, so it made me think of that while we're sitting here talking about it. I'm right. like, they didn't advertise for the show, but maybe we should talk to them. They would like that story. Um, yeah, so, well, I think that there's a certain crossover, too, between um, Nordic mythology, sword and sorcery fiction, and, like, heavy metal bands and album covers, too. Like, there's a whole Viking long hair, uh, you know, heavy weapons, like, that kind of stuff. There, yeah. There's crossover, yeah, material there. And I think that this is, I was definitely listening to a lot of metal when I wrote this. That and, and the soundtrack uh, from Vikings. <laughs> yeah, you um, actually, let me pull that up here. There's two specific albums I listened to last night before talking about this because you, while you were, before you, I think it was when you first got it published, you told me about this. You told me exactly the story you're telling me right now. Um Let's see here. You recommended, while you were writing this, you said you watched, you listened to Cathedral. Um, specifically, let's, let's, so we get this right. Specifically, uh, Forest of Equilibrium was one of the albums you said you were listening to. Cool. Fucking great album, by the way. Um, all their stuff's really good, but this one's, this one's pretty awesome. I mean, just, you guys can't see the cover right now, but just reminding Mm, Victor of it. It's, it's. (laughs) It's very um, heavy on the fantasy, um, and it's it's obscure as shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what was the what was the other one uh, that you recommended? Oh, Electric Wizard. Oh, yeah. Electric Wizard was the other one you said you listened to while you were writing this book, and it was Come My Fanatics. Oh yeah, was the album. It's great um, stuff. Yeah, I just I just listened to the Dope Throne album and it's awesome. I that's what I have here as a from listening to because I kept I was like, oh shit, I can't stop there at this album. Um, and I saw that Dope Throne was their most like popular one. Yeah, it's pretty fucking awesome. Yeah, it's a long ass album, but it's definitely worth um, the saga of listening to. It's a it's an epic work. It is a long album. It's. An hour and fifteen. Well, hour and fifteen, but they're just yeah. It's it's long for a metal record. Yeah, it's it's long. It's long for a modern person to sit down for that long, and and you'll want to do that. <laughs> you'll want to listen to the whole thing. It's a it's a 
It's awesome. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. My friend Callie recommended that to me, um, like last year. And I, I had, I think I had heard the, the title track, which is also really long. It's like 10 or 11 minutes. Yeah. Um, but then I finally heard the whole album cause she was like, no, 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 it's really good. And, and I was like, all right. Uh, and it was, it was worth it. It was, it's worth the reward of, of listening. <laughs> it's awesome. What's funny is I had those notes in my phone from you before when we started this whole podcast this one that what that little blurb wasn't even written in the the outline for today because i was like last night i was like wait a minute victor recommend i said we're doing the show tomorrow and victor recommended these metal albums to me when he did that book when he wrote that for that book and i was like gotta look what that look it up and i was like it was I had listened to them when you originally sent them to me, but that was God, what over two years ago, probably. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, fuck, where the hell am I going to find these albums without texting him at 11 o'clock at night? <laughs> and, I'm so glad you did that. And I, I looked through my phone and there they were in my like reminder section. Cause that's like the last place I put things sometimes in a, in a scramble, I'll just put it in my phone <laughs> somewhere. And so it was buried in the reminders thing and i was like ah there it is right there cathedral check out these uh, albums yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) so you got like your recurring theme that you you've kind of lived by through your writing career going on with this right um kind of come to your destiny type of moment uh yeah um yeah uh, it's sort of evil well not evil it's it's sort of dark wish fulfillment i mean um the main character seeks power and notoriety and she gets it but um, it is used against her by those that want to hold on to their positions that think that she might threaten them. Um, and uh, that's a good corporate skill to know if you're, uh, if you're working in a corporation, a political situation with other employees about how to make your moves if you want to um, you know, rise up the corporate ladder. Uh, it's always good to be cautious when you do that and smart. And... Um, yeah, uh, I think um, that's a, it's a pretty valuable lesson, um, but uh, it's also just a cool adventure story, um, you know. So I, I kind of, I did um, stuff that, you know, I, I mean, there there have been versions of Beowulf uh, or adaptations and, and, um, and versions that have been done. I mean, uh, Michael Crichton wrote Eaters of the Dead, which is uh, a retelling of Beowulf. Uh, and um, there's a movie called The 13th Warrior that's based on that book. And um, and then there's an I animated. Love, yeah, yeah. It's, and it's a I great it's sounding. I think it's an underrated movie, too. It, it, it didn't it, get that much attention when it came out. No, yeah. It's... Um, it has some flaws, but uh, it sounds awesome. Like it's, a, I remember being blown away by the sound design in the theater uh, when I saw it. And it's also got a score by Jerry Goldsmith. So it sounds oh, great. Yeah. It's <laughs> fucking awesome. And the way I thought it was a really clever way to dance around um, having another language in a movie. And mm. I don't, someone can write us and tell us that other movies have done this. It's the only one I know of yeah. off the top of my hand where, He's sitting around the fire. He just gets, you know, he gets picked to be the thirteenth warrior. And right. I love that. I, I love that scene, by the way, where he's like, "Wait a minute, thirteen warriors? They only count 12. Yeah. <laughs> and the guy's like, "You are the 13th. You. 
and he's a Spaniard and he wasn't even sp- it's like it's almost like um clerks yeah. he's like I'm not even supposed to be here today right yeah he's <laughs> that uh, been, that's right. like the jo- it would be the joke is like he just stands up in the middle he's like I'm not even supposed to be here yeah the char- the, char- the character's supposed to be Arabian um but it's uh uh yeah he's a Spanish actor because um, it was um Antonio Banderas yeah Banderas yeah I fucking love him, though. I don't care what anybody says. I no, thought he was he's great. great in that movie. Yeah. And he had a thin little sword, but he was badass with it. And it's, they made fun of him because the Vikings are like, that, what's that thing going to do? Yeah, it's not big enough. And he's like, but it's fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's a very effective warrior. But when, you know, he meets all these people, he can't speak their language. He doesn't know what the hell they're saying. And they did subtitles at first. Right. As their journey goes along and they're hiking to the village that they're going to go help. They're around this campfire one night and suddenly the subtitles stop and everyone's speaking English. And you're like, whoa. And, you know, not that they would. And I think someone's comment on that when it came out talking about they wouldn't speak English. And I'm like, you fucking idiot. You missed it. (laughs) That's not the point. It's our interpretation, because that means he actually understands what they're hearing now. And I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. I thought it was a very cool device to use to drop the subtitles like someone had a really great idea there with that. Like mm-hmm. yeah. how suddenly he's understanding everything they're saying. Yeah. And that's pretty much how it goes in the book too. There's um there's a great scene that's in the book that's not in the movie, um, which is, <laughs> it, they talk a lot about the cultural differences. And um, one of the things that I, I always thought was really cool was um, uh, the main character tells Oh, he's trying to get the favor of the Vikings. Like, he's like, they still, you know, they still don't like me. Uh, and his his Viking friend is like, well, you're a, you know, storyteller. Just tell him a story. Maybe that'll get him on your side. And so he decides to tell him the story of Abu Qasim's slippers, which is like, a, it's an Arab folktale. And um, the sense of humor of the Arabs is totally different than those of the Viking people (laughs) because um, like he's telling the story is kind of a a joke. Like it's kind of a picaresque, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like a, uh, you know, a a troublemaker hero. And, and, and then this guy gets these slippers and he can't get rid of them. And the Vikings hate it. Like they, they, they're just like that, you know, that's a horrible curse that that guy suffered and they start getting angry and throwing stuff at him. Um, so he, he doesn't succeed right away in the, in the book. He has to work really hard at it. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. That should have been in the book. Yeah. It's, it's a tough one to, to get to get right but the um the book is very literary in that it it it's it's all fake like it's it's um it, it's the way Crichton frames it is like this is the actual telling of Beowulf um even though he makes he made this whole thing up so right. he just supposes like this is the way it might have happened and he puts like all these um notes in it uh about um you know sort of a book Uh, book design notes and it's like well this may or may not be true or you know this is definitely true and uh you know uh he obviously is a scholar of cultures so he he probably knew a lot of that stuff going into it but it makes for an interesting read it's it's kind of a lovecraftian in that way that it's it's it sort of embraces the the realism and textbookness of it without interfering with the story so that's really cool it's very clever you know, there's in that movie, too, there's like I was catching Temple of Doom references when I watched that movie. And I was young when that came out and I was like, yeah, 
it's got a kind of Temple of the Doom, Temple of Doom kind of thing going on here, you know, in this where they went to find them and like that whole scene where they're up on a cave up top looking down at them. It very much reminded me of of like, did maybe they just shot it in the same set because that set's still somewhere. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe it's the same set. I mean, w- would that even surprise you? Like that that the Temple of Doom set still exists, and they're like, oh, you want to shoot shoot a movie like that? We can make it look a little different. Yeah, um, makes sense. I mean, it's it's a cavern system. I mean, how different do you need it to look? I mean, that's, right, that's fine. Sure, it works. <laughs> um, I'm glad you brought that movie up because that's one that I like, and I've been. I've been shunned for it before. They're like, oh, that movie was so cheesy. It was such a 90s blockbuster style where they just put the most handsome man in it that from that time. And I'm like, oh, man, I think you missed a good movie. Like, because it's a, I, it's I a cool it story. A good movie. Yeah, and it's, I, it's I always cool liked I like the the theme of like folklore tales like that, because it's just it's it's what I like about the Princess Bride. Like, it's just it's an adventure. Yes. And it's cool because it just has like a great long story arc that's really involved. And mm-hmm. there's always a lot of character development in it, mm-hmm. um, which is almost kind of like how I fell out of love with Game of Thrones. Like I loved Game of Thrones in the beginning. But once the character development was done and in my mind, I felt they should have wrapped it up. Yeah, they kept going on longer. And I was like, okay, I'm out now. Like, because yeah. then they introduced more people, and I'm like, I don't fucking know these people. Why do I care about them? I've yeah. been with these people the whole time. Stop yeah. bringing in new people. That is one of the risks you run with uh, long, long form fiction. And I know I'm I'm the uh, outlier there. That people were like, how did I stopped watching it season like five? And they're like, how the fuck did you stop watching it season five? Oh my god, that's <laughs> when it just got good. And I was like, right. well. I, I, it served its purpose to me. I yeah. loved the, the gathering of heroes. And yeah, when I saw they were going to drag out the dragons <laughs> <laughs> for another few, <laughs> the best, are, the best characters are in the first few seasons like that. He, yeah. he rolls out the best characters immediately. Like uh, Jamie Lannister is probably my favorite character in a sword and sorcery story ever made. Oh, the sister fucker. Yes. Yes. I, I mean, he's, uh, I, I still don't know if he's an anti-villain or an anti-hero. Um, I guess it depends on what perspective you're looking from, but, um, he's got his moments of being a good guy and he knows what he knows. He's fucked up. Yeah. I think he's, he the, knows he's he been the, a bad person. He's the funniest, like he has the, the funny, the wittiest lines. Um, he does, he's constantly surprises me in what he does in, in the books and the TV show. Um, and, um, and uh, he's also at the center of things. So I, I think it's a great combination that makes him really sort of likable, even though he's a really despicable character. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I thought it was funny that even in that time, you know, this this Dark Ages type fictional time frame, the movie, the, the show takes place. He's he's ridiculed for being like doing, you know, in being involved in incest, which I'm like. Yeah, if that was a real time frame, did anyone even think of that kind of shit? People were not. I don't think. I, don't know. I think the that whole system of of blue blood thrived on inbreeding. Uh, certainly in Egypt, it was acceptable um, at at certain points in history. Anyway, I, I don't know. I, I think it, it's like if if you started getting problems in the royal lines with um, you know de- deformed kids, uh, that's when the, the you know the uh, what do you call it? The um, 
a taboo probably emerged about, oh, yeah, <laughs> you can't sleep together if you're brother and sister or cousins or whatever. Um, and uh, and that's what carried on to the, the modern day. But yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. I don't know. I don't have any uh, brothers or sisters, so uh, <laughs> that's really that's... alien to my experience. That's <laughs> yeah, yucky. Um, what else we got to talk about here in this story, Victor? Well, I'm, you he... know, I'm done with my notes, so you know, I'm just, I'm just uh, letting you run with it now. What do you, what do you, what else do you want to talk about? Cool. Well, I just wanted to mention one thing, um, and that is uh, that we're we're recording this on. Um, May 20th, 2021. And uh, I just got word last night that uh, Kentaro Miura, um, the creator of the manga book series Berserk, died. Um, and he has died before finishing Berserk, which is a, a tragedy. Oh, wow. um, but that series was monumentally inspirational for me. I, I definitely couldn't have written this story without it. I couldn't have written Scripto Inferior without it. Uh, I think it's just the most brilliant example of uh, sword and sorcery, deep, deep characters and story, um, but still exciting, titillating, you know, R-rated, high-quality action, um, you know, a highly unique uh, characters and situations really highly recommend anyone out there listening to this to the, if you're if you're into animation uh watch the the animated japanese tv series of berserk that um it's like 1997 i think it was made so the anime is a little primitive by today's standards but um it's definitely worth watching it's there's so many fantastic things that happen in that show uh i can't recommend it um more highly enough but i'm deeply Deeply sad, and I cried uh, last night when I found oh, out man. he died. Yeah, it was it's it's a big moment for me. But his legacy lives on through his fans, of which there are many, including myself. So there you go. Yeah, well, you know, always sad to hear. Uh, you know, one, you know, our our inspiration to our careers when we hear something like that pass on. It's always it's always sad, you know. Um but I'm glad that you are here today to write those stories from your inspiration from that. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, and uh, considering he was uh, my age when he died, uh, it's uh, it also kind of rammed the, it rammed the existential point home that it's like, oh, am I living my best life right now? Like, you know, if, if, I, if I was Mira and I died after having created Berserk, that's not too bad. You know, that's at least there's something that's that's on the map that uh, people can look to and be inspired by. But uh, I hope that uh, somebody is inspired by my stuff in that way uh, in some someday in some way. So that would be you great. always inspire me, man. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, you know, one note I was going to go back to um that you talked about earlier was about um, kind of like uh, coming to your destiny, not the way you planned for it, you know, and farewell concert definitely has that theme. And of course, and you know, it's, it's a big theme in a lot of your stories, but it's making me think of uh, practicing magic and kind of, you know, anyone that's into that, it's like, it's a very good tale too of like, you know, especially, when you said the thing about your age and, and dying, it makes me think of that. Like, you know, I, I practice some magic 
uh, rituals and, and my wife and I do, Daryl and I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do have to be very careful what you wish for, because, you know, if you just ask the universe and you try to manifest for, let's say, money, mm-hmm. you, you might get it in the way you weren't hoping. Like maybe a relative dies and right. you get that inheritance. So it's like, it's good to be specific. Yes, it's very good to be specific with your intents. And I, I mean that where, where I'm coming full circle with this back to, you know, what you're talking about is that with Berserk is that not saying he practiced magic or anything at all. I'm not even insinuating that. But it's like you you should think about that with your life. You know, everyone should. It's like with what you're doing is that are you manifesting the things that you intend to do and that if anything, from all this fucking quarantine and whenever I hear someone die young, that's what I think of is like, what are you going to do with what you got right now? Yeah. You know, and, and, and manifest your intentions in the most specific ways. Agree. And, um, you'll live a better life. Agree. And I, I think that we're going to have a lot of fun talking about my next book because I tackle that subject really heavily in it. It's really cool. I've been really into human design, which is a fun topic to explore into that as well. Um, yeah, I've never heard that term before, although I think I know what it means. Yeah, there's there's um, human design has to deal with uh, kind of your how when and where you were born and has to do with kind of like your, you know, your body reacts to your personality. Hmm. Um, it's a big topic. It's a lot to unpack. Human design can't be easily summed up in a short term because it kind of ties in on all the kind of ancient uh religious practices in a way you know it's it's got some very um old history to it tied to it um and i don't want to misquote anything because i've just started really getting into it the last couple weeks well maybe maybe we should do a show on it um yeah you know do some research offline and then just do a, a like a bonus episode or something yeah, human design is really cool. Um, but, you know, I got a neighbor that's like, he's only in his 50s, and he, he got diagnosed with a, a brain tumor mm. at the beginning of quarantine. And, you know, and I've just watched his life kind of deteriorate away, and it's really sad to watch someone go through cancer. If you've ever seen it, obviously, it sucks. Yep. They don't even look the same. Yeah. Um, and just, I'm like, God damn, man. Like, it, it, that's how, like, when people say, like, oh, uh, you know, you only live once or life is short. Well, yeah, you do only live once. Of course you do. But life isn't really short. But I guess if you measure it based on like where you're at today, you could always look at it that way. So that's why it's like you should always just heed to like, like you're doing your writing, right? Like that was a big achievement for you to do. Like you want to do this writing and you're and you're doing it. So I, I, I would just implore that to anyone that like this podcast is an example. I'm, we're not making money off this, but it was something I wanted to do. And I specifically wanted to really do it with Victor and we're doing it. And it's just, you should never hold yourself up from doing something that you've thought about that you want to put your passion into. Me too. And yeah, as far as passion projects go, they, they really should be their own reward. Like when I stop having fun writing, I'm probably going to stop writing. Um, this, like being able to record with you is something I always look forward to, like for the whole week. 
And um, I, I think that that makes Thanks. doing this really fun. Yeah, it's and that's why I want to keep doing it. <laughs> well, you know, that's such a warm and fuzzy note that we, sh- we can just we should probably just end on this. And um, yeah, showmanship, <laughs> you know, we can we can revisit with a bonus episode. So everyone will stay tuned. It'll all this stuff will stay in the same channel pathway uh, yeah. on, on on your podcasts networks. Um. But again, thank you all to everyone who listened. And thank you. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Victor. Thank you, Josh. Until next time. All right. Farewell, everyone. Mm-hmm.